Song number 261 has been asked that we mark that. Not only are we delighted to do that, but also the opportunity to assemble together, as we have already been mentioned this afternoon, the opportunity, and is it a rich and blessed one indeed. Our health is okay. The circumstances of the day have afforded us the pleasure of mind and the disposition of heart to meet at this place. And our purpose, our desire, our objective, nothing more or less than to exalt and magnify God as we worship Him. And oh, how blessed we will be as we do that. The psalmist said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up unto the house of the Lord. The opening verse of the 122nd Psalm. And tonight as we think about some of the aspects touching subjects like that, when I might encourage you to think about the title already. It is a rather noteworthy one, I think, in light of the text that was just read in our hearing a moment ago. Drawn from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 to 15, you and I are faced with what may well be a very eye-catching warning, a set of dangers that certainly are well worth a few moments' consideration, certainly. As we think about those, we will revisit that text time and again tonight. But as we do that, perhaps this opening slide, as we often are wish every of a position to do, is to think about that which prompts us on our way this evening. What a value and what a benefit it often is to be warned, to be faced with those who care enough or are aware of dangers to the point that they issue a warning. And if you and I are wise, we will heed those warnings. We will at least give consideration to the nature of the circumstance so that we might avoid any pitfalls, perhaps dangers to the point of even death can come, of course, if warnings are ignored. Tonight, I wonder what the warning of 2 Corinthians 11 might be. What is the matter for which the danger is so severe that it is phrased in the way you and I have seen it so far? The general features of that might well lead us to an extended nature of these things we've studied already. You know well that we all are faced with warnings frequent in character, reminding us of dangers in one form or another. I've just taken the liberty of selecting a few lasers, top one at the left. You and I know well that if one looks into a laser, and we warn our students about that all the time in physics, it's wonderful to appreciate the opportunity to experiment with them, but they are not toys. And they are not to be looked into that beam, for if you do, you can damage portions of the eye, and it's irreparable damage given the intensity on some occasions of the laser. You can see, whether it be slippery floors, slow-moving tractor pieces of equipment, or at the bottom, even, if it's radiation. You and I are such that warnings are often presented to you and to me, and it is anticipated that we will take extreme care to heed the warnings. Should any less be true in regard to what God warns us? Should any less be true in terms of our response and our direction toward the warnings that He gives us? I think certainly we all understand the answer to be a resounding no. In fact, the warnings God gives ought to be even more closely heeded. Let's then turn to our passage and let's study again some of the features found before us in 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. I thought it wise, as we often are wont to do, to reflect upon the setting and the circumstances of the text. For in so doing, we gain a clearer vision, a more clearly resolved lens, if you will, as it relates to what was the subject the inspired writer was presenting, the church in Corinth. 
The second Corinthian letter is, in fact, the third, as far as we can tell, of letters that this congregation had received. Paul had written them one that the Holy Spirit has chosen not to preserve for us. The first Corinthian letter was his second one. And yet we find here yet a third letter to whom he wrote to these brethren. It's certainly easy to see that as he wrote to them, Paul loved them, he cared for them. Again, this was several times he had written to them with the desire to draw them to a closer appreciation to what God had in mind for their faithfulness to correct errors that were in their lifestyle. So much so that you'll notice how this begins. Paul had had a very certain hand in assisting the foundation of this congregation. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 15 highlights that thought for us. But even the book of Acts, as Paul came to Corinth on that second missionary journey as recorded in Acts 18, we find there the establishment of this congregation of the body of, of, of the people of God. In so doing, though, you'll notice that Paul soon, of course, traveled elsewhere. And as he did so, you'll notice the situation, it would appear, deteriorated fairly quickly in Corinth. They weren't grounded, perhaps, as thoroughly as one might have wished. There were so many influences to direct them and lead to their digression. There were so many forces at work. And those forces, it seems, were having the upper hand by the time the first Corinthian epistle was written. You and I have noted on our Wednesday evening studies how often Paul reprimanded them rather sternly, reminded them of their carnality, reminding them of their division, reminding them of the fact they had chosen the wrong course. Part of that was because of some teachers. Influential individuals had, who had occupied positions whereby they were leading the people or at least encouraging them in ways that were separate and apart from the truth of God. It might well be, as you and I think about those teachers, one of the features that seems to rise to the surface so very clearly in these Corinthian epistles was that they absolutely questioned Paul's authority. You and I can well imagine the effectiveness, perhaps, of such a ploy. Here was a teacher who they admired and respected, one who had assisted in the foundation of that congregation, and yet, in order to perhaps get their way, they would call his credentials into question. They would call his authority into question. For that reason, several times in these epistles, Paul was forced, for the purpose of defending his own apostleship, toward the efforts and labor that it was still able to have in those churches. You'll notice in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 on into chapter number 12, Paul defended his own credentials and did so with power. He made mention of his own humility in terms of his labor. He didn't beg them for money. Many false teachers, it seems, are motivated by that fact. And he said, we never, ever, even once ask donations from you. Paul was even quick to say that I robbed other churches to do you service. Verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 11. Isn't it rather amazing that on into chapter 12 he even highlighted the fact that he had been the recipient of visions and revelations that allowed him even to be lifted to the third heaven. And Paul utilized those ideas as a basis on which to prompt them to consider he was an apostle. He was directed by the God of heaven. And the truth that he set forth was not merely his opinion or his feelings. 
maybe in fairness to those points, you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, Paul proceeds to provide us then some descriptions of these individuals who were attacking him. And these individuals that were having such an influential effort in Corinth. Back to verse number 12. But what I do that I will do that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory they may be found even as we. Paul highlighted there were those who were seeking occasion against him. They were trying to find fault. They were trying to find error. They were trying to find discrepancy. They were seeking occasion whereby they could discredit him even further in the light of the, of the Corinthian church. They were seeking such occasions. Paul quickly affirms, I may cut off occasion. Paul did not purposely act in any way to give them fuel, if you please, to in any way harm their confidence, their truth, their understanding of the way of God. He in no way acted in a way to prompt any further moving from the truth. In fact, he went on to say, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we these influential teachers in Corinth were glorying. A bit of arrogancy and pride seemingly described their way. And Paul said at the end of that verse, that wherein they glory, Paul's hope and his trust were that those teachers, those individuals would come to know the truth even as he and the true servants of the Lord. And in so doing, they might then genuinely have reason to glory. Verse number 13. For such are false apostles. False apostles. At this point, perhaps you and I can continue even further by looking a bit more carefully at the terms the inspired apostle Paul used. I've always found it a bit intriguing to note the original Greek word behind this one. You and I are familiar with the prefix pseudo. Sometimes we face that, whether it be pseudoscience whether it be other kinds of things that are recognized as not genuine. They are recognized as imposters or fakes. Paul says these individuals are pseudo-apostolos, false apostles. They are play actors. They are individuals who themselves make claims to that which they are not. False apostles. As you give thought to that, you'll appreciate they made claims, did they not, to be the ambassadors of the Son of God. They made claims to the effect of what they were not, nor did they have their credentials, nor were they qualified to make such claims. Pseudo-apostolos. In light of these false apostles, Paul isn't nearly completed, though, that list. You'll notice verse 13 then says, Deceitful workers. And I would ask you to notice the language present. Deceitful workers. Deceit is not lifted high anywhere in the Word of God, is it? It's not of God. Our God is a God of truth, to quote Deuteronomy 32.4. He is a God who not only Himself is of truth, He demands His followers to be the same. Here are deceitful workers. They are workers, that to be sure. But they are stirring up problems, causing trouble, and in so doing, the deceit that prompts and is the objective of their way is a deceit that has personal vested interest in it. Deceitful workers. As you can see on that slide, the literal Greek word means to disguise. 
It's like putting on a facade like often happens at Halloween. A person disguises him or herself. These are workers who knew what they were doing. It's not that they were innocent and false. They knew very well that they were disguising the truth. They were not preaching that which was of God. And they knew it. The, the disguise, as you can also see, leads us to a pic, appreciate the picture. It is of a group of people who themselves were misleading the Corinthian church and doing so knowing full well what they were doing. May we say, even before going much further, there still are those of that caliber today. They know very well what's being done. Disrupting the church, causing issues and problems, stirring up difficulties among brethren. And all the while those things are done, it leads us near the bottom of that slide. For you see, in many ways, the most astounding part of this is yet to come. We've seen descriptions many times in the Word of God of false teachers. Very few books of the Bible would be found without some kind of reference to those that are living falsely and encouraging others to the same. But this one is unique. Let's move on into the latter part of that verse. These deceitful workers, these pseudo-apostolos, it says they transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Transforming. As you can well tell, that word means to make oneself over, to fashion oneself after. They gave the appearance of truthfulness and they had the right words to say, but it was not from their heart. No wonder as you look at those pictures, the next statement now takes an added light. Paul says in the opening words of the next verse, "...and no marvel." He has just described these false teachers who seemingly were so influential and so effective. And now he says, you shouldn't be surprised. You ought not consider it as a marvel or an amazing thing. In fact, that very word, no marvel, literally means it's no wonder. It's not any amazing matter or an amazing appreciation. And now he explains why he would say that. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He has just described these who were troubling the Corinthian church, motivated by arrogance, motivated by pride, motivated by selfish interests and intrigues. And now he says, even Satan himself. You and I know well that on many occasions in the sacred word of God, this individual, this character, this being known as Satan is presented to you and me. The descriptions are many. But might we use this, among other things, as a verse to remind us. Did you notice the personal pronoun that goes with the word here? Satan himself. That same kind of personal pronoun is used to describe other beings like God and like the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, 15, and 16. May we never think, as some have been wont to do, that this Satan, this devil, is just an influence, a bad thought, some kind of feeling that is not appropriate. The devil is much more than a feeling. And he's much more than merely an influence or an emotion. He is a being, the devil himself. As you give thought to that personal pronoun in reference to him, how often are we in position to remember that? We're admonished to be sober, be vigilant. 
For your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Who was it then that was literally at work in Corinth? The false teachers might be mentioned, but Paul says it's really the devil who is behind all of this. It's Satan who is the one who is at work, and legion is the effort behind his means. He was the one causing these problems. In regard to those false teachers, Paul said you then shouldn't be surprised. They're following the one who is their leader. They're following the one who prompts them, directs them, and instructs them relative to this matter. Did you notice some of the final things on the slide? This adversary, this devil, as surely as we've already observed him, isn't it true that it's now time to observe that explicit phrase that appears? For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Imagine it. The devil, the evil being that he is, this one who has no interest in pursuing the truth, this one who in fact is a rebel to his very core. Jesus called him a murderer from the beginning in John 8, 44. He is one who opposes all that is righteous and good and godly. And yet Paul said, warning, he is able to transform himself into an angel of light. The devil can do this. He can make that which ultimately is so wrong and so evil, he can make it sound so positive and so worthwhile and so noble and so good. Many a supposed follower of the Lord has been misled. A good idea is mentioned and he thinks that sounds so appropriate, that sounds like a grand idea. Little did he know he has just taken the first step toward apostasy. Little did he know he's taken the first step toward full digression from the truth of God and the devil was behind it, transformed into an angel of light. You and I, when we think about light, we think about God, do we not? For do we not read in 1 John 1 verse 5 that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And yet the devil, Satan, the adversary, this one often recognized as Beelzebub, Belial. Otherwise, he is called that one that is the great deceiver, Revelation 12 verse 9. He is able to transform himself into an angel of light. Doesn't that, among other things, suggest very quickly that this one of whom we're speaking does not play fairly? He doesn't put all his cards, if you please, on the table. He puts the ones He wants us to see and He allows us to draw the conclusions whereby He wishes us to draw, all the while concealing that which is the real fate, all the while concealing that which is the ultimate end of those cards. And in so doing, we understand well how subtle, how deceitful, how clever, how beguiling He is able to be. I've just listed a few considerations along that line, lest we ever forget them. It seems as though from the first mention of him onward, we gain the appreciation that this is his nature. In Genesis chapter 3, the first overt reference to his activities with the human family, we notice there that he in fact came before Mother Eve, didn't he? She had been given, as well as her husband Adam, a single commandment. 
of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree in the midst of the garden thou shalt not eat, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You and I know well that she understood well what it was that was stated, for in fact she quoted it to the devil himself in chapter 3, verses 1 and following. When he came before her, isn't it true? The opening words of Genesis 3 are these. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. His subtlety, the cleverness with which he clothed himself on that occasion. And then he began a conversation with Eve. Has God said, thou shalt not eat of every tree of the garden? Did you notice how subtly he began the conversation? There seems to be nothing wrong with that. Eve, has God said you are not to eat of any tree of the garden? She responded properly. They were not to eat of that tree in the midst, nor were they even to touch it, Eve said. But then the devil said, doesn't it look good for food? Doesn't it look pleasant to the eye? And don't you ever forget, God doesn't want you to take of it because He knows if you do, you'll be like Him. You'll know good from evil. You'll have a keener appreciation than you have ever had of what is wrong and what is right. How many have fallen for that ploy in the ages since? Something is mentioned, some activity, some idea, some approach, and all the while the nobility of it sounds so good. Don't you know we can serve more people by doing this? We can bring the Word of Christ to more individuals. There are others that will come to know the truth by this effort. Oh, I admit it's not found in the Bible anywhere, but isn't it a good idea? And so an eldership chooses to follow it. A congregation begins on board and is wholeheartedly in favor. Within ten years, open digression has happened. That church is a shell of what it once was. What was thought to be a good idea began a work that ultimately divided brethren because some finally began to ask, where is that in the Bible? I don't find it authorized. But by then, as questions were asked, others were no longer willing to discuss it. May we say, the devil himself transformed into an angel of light. This is a severe warning, isn't it? There is beware written all over it. No wonder as you come then to the statements that follow. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I would ask you to notice a passage that began the chapter, back up in verse number 3. But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul said, I fear that you Corinthian brethren will suffer a similar fate to what Eve did. She was misled by the devil's subtlety, and I fear you will too, drawn away from the simplicity that's in Christ. The way of Christ is so simple. Men have tampered with the things of God. They've changed it. They have offered what they consider to be superior ideas, and never is it so. God's Word cannot be improved upon. The gospel is perfect as it is. And are we not in position to remember that that better covenant is the way it's described in Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 9? As you can well tell, this passage has one final statement in verse 15. As we turn our attention to it, let's build some additional thoughts in the following way. 
Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers... Might I ask you to notice who's the he is? Notice, we've just been discussing the devil. We've just been discussing Satan, and so his ministers... Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. You and I must surely admit that Paul did not mince any words here. After describing the devil, after describing him, and no one would question the evil being that he is, the opposer, the rebel to God, and now he says... You ought not be surprised for these folks that are troubling the church in Corinth. They're his ministers. You shouldn't be surprised if they're able to transform themselves into angels of light. Their master can do it. They can do it too. How many movements can you think of in the history of Christianity that began with what appeared to be a noble idea? And as it proceeded and as it grew and as it gained ascendancy and as it gained numbers it came to be realized what evil was within it. Notice again the, the wording, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers. I wonder how those people in Corinth reacted. When this letter was read before them, notice, I wonder those that were present, is he calling me a minister of the devil? Was Paul calling me that? Notice if the shoe fit, they were supposed to wear it. There were some workers in the church at Corinth that Paul said are the servants of the devil. They're the ones causing issues, difficulties, problems, and they're the ones that must be dealt with. Isn't the New Testament stern and strong and straightforward and direct? And surely we can see in a passage like this one the matters, the fact that today it's still needful, isn't it, to confront error head on. There's no need to beat around the bush. Uh, thus saith the Lord will put to an end if you and I are willing to follow it all matters. May I suggest to you as you come to that slide, it is a sad thing to note the way the verse ends. It says their end shall be according to their works. Paul wasn't in any way happy that these false teachers were going to have the end that they were, but he did want to safeguard the integrity of those Corinthian people. Don't you follow these servants of the devil. Today, his servants number in the legions, don't they? Those who choose to take the word of God and transform themselves into an angel of light. They can quote a scripture or two, but they twist it, they pervert it, they use it to teach what it does not teach. You and I are ordered in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God. Why? A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is possible to handle it improperly. It is possible to twist it. Wasn't it true in 2 Peter 3, verses 16 and 17, that there, there were those to whom Peter wrote, and he said the writings of Paul can be challenging. And there are those, even in Peter's day, who he said they twist it, they rest it, W-R-E-S-T, but they do so to their own destruction. Nothing has changed in that regard. If you and I rest it, we too shall be destroyed by the truth it proclaims. What was it that Paul affirmed in 2 Corinthians 7, 1? 
there is he made reference to the nobility of handling it properly. Today, how sweet it is to rest a life on the confidence of the truth set forth in it, not changing it to meet our whims and fancies. I would suggest as we close that slide, we have learned that Satan acts by disguise and there, his followers do the same. Consider with me as we approach the last portion of our lesson this evening, a slide that I have simply put forth like this. You may remember at the outset I entitled it Warning Danger with the emphasis placed upon them. The church in Corinth was being warned. They were told that danger was lurking in their midst. May you and I with strong and ever-present carefulness make certain that we do not in any way encourage such evil because if so, we become the followers of the devil too. Isn't it amazing then some of these things are now the obvious consequences. The truth cannot be compromised, can it? God didn't give us a truth allowing us to compromise it in such a way that we bend and make it into whatever we wish it to be. Didn't Paul write to the Galatians in Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9 and say, Though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any gospel other to you than that which you've received. Let him be accursed. Now, that was strong language. The Galatians, again, had been prompted by some false individuals and teachers that prompted ways that were not correct. They were warned. There is but one gospel. When you and I think about the possibilities of compromise, we shudder to think of how God looks upon such. Those verses I would ask you to consider near the top of that slide. Among them, the latter one so rapidly races to the forefront of our thinking. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, our Lord declared in John 8, 32. As Jesus made that statement, He forever identified that there is the truth, and that truth can be known, and that truth must be followed and obeyed. To not do so, again, is part and parcel, isn't it, of failing in that matter of service to God. The truth, notice where that leads us next. There are things then that may sound appropriate, but they're not the truth. Maybe this is the opportunity to recollect those famous words of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 14. In fact, this verse occurs twice. There is a way that seemeth right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 16.25, Proverbs chapter 14 as well, verse number 12. Notice again, there is a way that seems right. It sounds good, it's appealing, and perhaps it's even attractive. But yet, the end of it, the fruition of it, the totality of it, is ultimately the way that leads to death. That reminds us again, doesn't it, that Jeremiah 17, 9 still says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There are those who seemingly rest upon their feelings as if there is nothing possible that can be inappropriate about it. But how many times does God say, I'm telling you, be careful for we know the devil is powerful and subtle and clever and even he 
can transform himself into an angel of light, and so too can his ministers. And the heart can be persuaded. It can be deceived. We must never, ever rely on our feelings, hoping they'll get us to heaven. As you can perhaps see in light of that, how many times has the human family been deceived? David was. Listen to how innocent this sounds. In 1 Chronicles 21, you may remember there that the devil prompted David to number Israel. Now, I believe any of us might initially consider that sounds like a great idea. If I take a census of the fighting men, I'll know how many troops I have. I'll know how many I can send to war. I'll know how many I can leave behind to protect the remaining cities. That sounds like a great idea. The devil was behind it. Pestilence was brought on Israel because of it. David should never have done it. He was trusting in men rather than in God. Notice again how subtle that sounded. I don't know but what I would have fallen for it. The devil can make things sound so enticing. As you can well appreciate, any of us then can find ourselves in the crosshairs of the devil's activity. Any congregation faithful in nature is guaranteed to find itself in his crosshairs at some point. No wonder in light of those things, look at a host of the examples that could be mentioned just from recent years. Things that have brought problems to the human family. Where did you and I come from? What about the origin of the human family? Notice how innocently it sounds. The earth looks old. Rocks, some geologists tell us, are old, though they're really not. Well, that looks so innocent, I can't seemingly find any good reason to think otherwise. And soon, evolution is that which I've wholeheartedly been engulfed by. And this matter then leads to an approach to the Bible which, quite frankly, is not correct. There are many passages that must be distorted to bring them into line with that kind of viewpoint. And the devil has laughed all, the, all along, hasn't he? Today, there are many who, in fact, openly state that you can hold a biology, paleontology textbook in one hand and the Bible in the other, and the ne'er the twain has any mutually exclusive problem. But that simply isn't so. Of the 66 books of the Bible, how many refer back to Genesis chapters 1 through 11 and do so as much as those chapters are literal, actual history? In case you're wondering, the number is well over 40 of the 66 books in the Bible. And virtually every one of the New Testament ones refer back to those chapters. If we're going to call those into question, we ought to carry, call all the others into question too. For if God wasn't able to write what He meant, and in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, what right have we to think He said what He meant in all the other books either? He did say what He meant, and He meant what He said. Not only that, look at one of the other ones. What about the love of God? Who could possibly question the love of God? He does love us. We know that. What if, however, we ask, am I then at liberty to take God's love and use that as a license to do anything I wish? God's love is not a license to do that which is ungodly. How many have said, God doesn't want me to be in this marriage. I'm unhappy and God wants me to be happy. That's not a true statement. God wants you to be faithful. 
Happiness will come as a byproduct of faithfulness. And if we find ourselves in dire circumstances, that may require that certain things in life are off limits. I may not be blessed with the ability to remarry. I may not be blessed with various and sundry other opportunities. But faithfulness is more important. Not only that, what about these? The way the church operates today, some women are extraordinarily talented. They can speak eloquently. They often have good ideas relative to the way to amass a group and prompt them to move forward. Why can't a woman then preach? Sounds like a good idea to some. Why don't we try it? What about as an elder? We would not by any means insult the female gender. But we appreciate that God has a plan in mind and He vouchsafed that to us for safekeeping as His followers. We are not at liberty to change that. We're not at liberty to call it into question or to think we have a superior idea. Maybe finally you might ask, even as we noted in the lesson this morning, some congregations might say, but the singing is awful. Why don't we have an instrument to help us? We can stay in tune. It'll help make sure all the parts can sing properly in tune together. Sounds like a great idea to some. Let's try it. Sounds so innocent, doesn't it? And yet we know it leads right along the pathway of destruction. We learned this morning that there was no authority for that. And as we come to the lessons close this evening, we've seen again a series of warnings and a series of dangers. As we close the lesson, let's end it then like this. One final time, warning. One final time, danger. Satan and his ministers are ever at work. And as they are at work, they are surrounding those that are the faithful with a desire to bring them into dissolution to bring ideas into mind that cause them to recognize that they think that other ways are better, that other ways are superior, when it is not so, nor has it ever been. As we've looked at Paul's words to the Corinthian congregation, we've noticed the language was exceedingly strong to call someone an absolute minister of the devil. Paul did it. He did so with all the authority of heaven. Today, as you and I think about the faithfulness of a congregation, may we be eternally thankful for a faithful church, that we can be a part of it, resting assured that what is done by way of leadership, as well as the activities in classrooms and from the pulpit, the way that prayers are led and the singing and the worship, that all of it is in accordance to that which is the truth of God. And in so doing, we could be edified and strengthened and God can be honored. And certainly we can lead our children in the pathway of the same truth. As we think about others that are facing those problems we've described, though, may we pray for them, help them, strive to assist them, teach them as Paul did these Corinthians, and warn them when that is the appropriate attack. Tonight, this hymn of encouragement is about to be sung. Brother Glenn's going to lead us in that. And if there's anyone that finds yourself distanced from God, separated from His saving love at this point, don't remain in that condition. Come at once to His side. If you've never obeyed the gospel initially, the Scriptures themselves demand that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You repent of your sins. You confess His name as the only begotten Son of God. 
and then you simply be immersed, baptized for the remission of your sins. Everything behind me is ready. That could be accomplished in a matter of minutes. If you have known the faithfulness of that walk at some point, but tonight you just don't know. It just doesn't seem so anymore. Why not talk to one of our elders, perhaps to me, confide in a friend? Let us be of assistance to you and allow you to move back to a place of faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 6 encourages you toward that end, and we certainly do the same. If though tonight we could pray for you, we'd be happy to do it. We would only ask you, let us know the way we can assist and do so at once. While together we stand and while we sing.